Hi, this is Chad Dull. Welcome to my Poverty Informed Podcast. Well, it's been a little while since I put a podcast up, so I hope there's still listeners out there. Um, But I am trying to get back in the habit of sharing information on a variety of fronts while I work on turning some of this work into a book and make 2023 the year the Poverty Informed Movement really grabs hold and we start to really change outcomes for folks. So I'd like today to share um, a piece of writing I did a month or two ago, which I called Poverty Informed Practice gray areas, and systems. Recently, I was fortunate to keynote at a large virtual conference for adult educators, literacy professionals, and people working to improve re-entry from incarceration. That presentation was followed soon after by a chance to speak to an all-college professional development day as a keynote as well. The feedback was positive, and of course, I enjoy this work to grow our discussion. Uh, In fact, if you're listening to this and you'd like me to come to your place, to get our movement started and growing, I'd be glad to. But I think that learning happens in reflection, and I've been reflecting on those presentations, and I had a few takeaways I think are worth sharing. I've always thought that you will know your efforts to change things are actually having some impact when you see discomfort in folks, and even when you meet resistance. This resistance, to me, means you're generally working in the gray areas of what we do, which in my opinion is where discomfort and progress usually happen. I was asked a question at the college keynote about how to work with people who some folks think, well, in a place where folks think that poverty-informed work falls outside the guidelines they're bound to. And my initial answer is always that professionals get paid to be in the gray area of policy. And if policies were perfect, we could simply run our organizations by flowcharts. No professionals needed. If this, then that. If yes, do this. If no, do that. And then I always point to the fact that if you believe in student success and in the gray areas, your choices will lean towards students. And I talk about the work at Amarillo College and their mantra of love your students more than you love your policies. But this off-the-cuff answer in this large group didn't feel very satisfying. I think the question behind the person's question was how do you get people in power to live in those gray areas? And that's complicated work. You see, systems are designed to generate the exact results they yield. And changing systems requires gray area work. And depending on your level of positional power in an organization, it can seem impossible. But here are two real life examples of ways it might happen. In my first two weeks when I worked at MSC Southeast as Vice President of Academics, I was approached by the Assistant Director of Financial Aid, this extraordinary woman named Pam. And she told me she was working with a student who was being prevented from registering for this term because they had debt from a prior term. But of course, without registering, they couldn't access their financial aid, which would have helped clear up their debt. It's a catch-22 I suspect many listeners in higher education are familiar with. Pam was beholden to the policy and the current interpretation. It's true, financial aid policy, or excuse me, financial aid staff, 
They understand policy better than most. But Pam also knew that separating the student from the college was a lousy way to help a student to the finish line. So she searched for gray areas. She caught the new vice president, that would be me, and told me the story. She had a hunch it would bother me, and she was right. And so my first question was, well, who, who can make an exception to that? She smiled and told me, well, the vice president certainly had that power. And I told her, go ahead and do it. Let the student back in. The student returned, and the only real consequence for the new vice president was a small scolding from the chief financial officer about resource management. But the student went on. Now, another place I saw the use of an ally to find gray areas was working with my registrar at the same college, an extraordinarily student-centered woman named Holly. Now, registrars might be even more policy-bound than my friends in financial aid, so much of their job is making sure processes work, and the processes don't interfere with student success as best you can. My standard joke is that I'm not entirely sure what a registrar does, but I know it's important. And this registrar was exceptional. She's competent, serious, and very student-focused. People would see her as black and white, but in reality, she had a very similar gray area strategy to Pam. Holly would bring me decisions that she had to make that clearly caused her pain. I may have been imagining her smile when she would say to me, unless, of course, you overrule me, but I like to think it was there. The takeaway for the person who asked me the question at the, the presentation would simply that you need to become a good enough observer to find your allies in places of power so that when you need to stretch the boundaries of policies that aren't achieving what they should, you have a chance to. So that was really interesting, but in many ways it was the presentation prior to that at the large virtual conference which has stayed in my head, more so than the gray area discussion. My theme for the presentation that day was about trying to create collective impact in the kind of work the people at that conference did, adult ed, re-entry, literacy work. I chose to talk about the power of systems because the people they serve are often trying to use systems that weren't designed for them and their circumstances. And in the middle of my presentation, I had a slide that said, the system will fight back. I argued systems will revert to their norms, almost seeking like this kind of homeostasis. It's a remarkable phenomenon because it's ingrained and insidious. It's insidious because people don't see it. The system represents the norm, and choices outside the norm seem suspect. I told a couple of stories as examples. The second story was intended to be a little provocative. It was about me inviting a partner agency into the department I led at the time without running it through the college channels. Basically, I had an open office, saw a connection we could make, and just gave away the open office to an outside partner. At the time, I was a very veteran dean with a track record of success, and at the time, I decided to assume I controlled what happened within my own space. Really, as a leader, I was never very rebellious, but that particular instance seemed more worth asking for forgiveness, if needed, than seeking permission, which would have been complicated, and historically, I had seen might delay or prevent this critical work. Really, at the most, the story, I'm not sure how provocative it was, it was just a calculated risk. But I did share with the group how the system fought back a year later when the building was remodeled, even with a track record of benefiting students. 
I had to main work hard. I had to work really hard to maintain what I had started. And I got pushback from folks. Should we be charging rent to these folks? That continued. That discussion continued even after I left the college, which seemed crazy. It, it was an idea that worked, but the system struggled with it. Now, it probably took me longer to tell you that story than it actually took to do it. And I moved on to the other 30 minutes of my talk. So imagine my surprise at the end of my presentation when we had time for questions and feedback. And among many, many positive comments, the most powerful person in the room also offered some feedback. This person was someone who represented control at a system-wide level. And their feedback was about being troubled by my story. They felt my approach could have led to large negative consequences. And they said they wished I had used proper channels instead of burning some of my political capital in this calculated risk. This person is someone I know, it's someone I like, and it's someone I respect. So I wasn't upset by the question. But like so many virtual meetings, my phone started blowing up and private chat messages started coming through saying, oh my God, the system is literally fighting back in real time. It was a perfect illustration of a person with good intentions being pulled back to the homeostasis of a system. Everything they said was couched in worst case scenario concerns, which is also an indicator of a system resisting change. Now in the moment, I said, well, perhaps I would do things differently now. In reality, after reflection, I would do exactly what I did. What I did showed the bias for action I asked for at every poverty-informed workshop. The other person's reaction was surprisingly strong and inadvertently the best possible example of a system fighting back on behalf of itself. Our systems support the middle of bell curves as you would expect them to. For those of us who are advocating for people on the ends of the curve, it will always be key to walk into and nudge others into productive gray areas. And when you do so, you better brace yourself that one of the strongest indicators of trying to drive meaningful change is the resistance of whatever system you are trying to improve. So find your allies, become comfortable with discomfort, and no resistance means you are likely on a productive track. In this framework, Resistance is your measure you're actually doing something.